Thank you for listening to episode 214 of the 200 Churches podcast. Yeah, and he said, uh, you know, uh, we're going we're gonna to bury his ashes at sea. And uh, could you come out and do that? Because he wasn't involved in a church. And I said, sure, that sounds great. And I got to meet the entire extended family group and spend the afternoon on the boat. If I was a large church pastor, I wouldn't have time to to do a service out at sea for a friend of a member. That's just not going to happen. But missionally and relationally, it was incredibly rewarding. There's no price you can put on those things. So I would just encourage small church pastors to appreciate and be as grateful as possible for all the good things we have. Welcome to the 200 Churches Podcast, where every Wednesday we produce a fresh episode of ministry encouragement for pastors of small churches. Now here are two guys who, like you, serve in the trenches of small church ministry, the Big Mac and Whopper of ministry podcasts, Jeff and Johnny. This is the 200 Churches Podcast. My name is Jeff Cady. I'm here in the studio with my good friend, colleague, and podcast partner. Johnny Craig. Johnny, how are you? I'm good. It's been unseasonably warm, so I feel great. Beautiful. Hey, we're recording early today. Yeah. So I'm trying to get my voice to sound (laughs) awake. There you go. I I don't think the the, the day that the last time I talked about this, I listened and I sounded okay. Yeah, you sound fine. No, I think this morning my voice has got a little bit of a morning gravel to it. I think that that can be to your benefit. No, only to my benefit if I keep up a lively and uh, aggressive posture. <laughs> sure, yeah. If you sink down and start to talk like this, exactly, that's not good. Exactly. Yeah, don't do that to our listeners. Hey, this the, today on episode two hundred and fourteen. Hello, we have a longtime listener. As it, we're starting to get more listeners as guests, yes. which is what we wanted to do. Four years ago when we started. Well, we needed N.T. Wright to break the ice for us. We also needed listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what I mean then, yeah. Yeah. So, pastor, reach out to at least one other small church pastor. Yes. Today. Today. Do it. Not this week. Not Now, of course, you know what? You don't have to listen to me. It's just me. But, hey, Johnny and I want to encourage you to reach out to a small church pastor that you know has never heard of the 200 Churches podcast. That's right, yeah. More and more and more, we're getting emails from people who are finding the podcast who think it's like the greatest thing since sliced bread. Why? Because it's encouraging and it talks about what their life is like as a small church pastor. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So we, you know, we grow by word of mouth. We don't advertise. We don't spend money on trying to get the word out there. Because you're too cheap. Yeah. Jeff keeps on saying, let's spend some money. And I said, where is this money coming from, Jeff? <laughs> let's not spend some our money. money our money, Yeah, let's our. spend our money on this. So uh, so we don't advertise. We don't do any of that kind of stuff. All of our growth has been organic, word of mouth. It comes from uh, pastors like you sharing this with other men and women who are doing small church ministry. So keep on sharing. Uh, leave a rating and review. Subscribe to the mailing list. These are all things that you can do to help us out that don't cost you anything, that we don't make any money on. And that, you know, it's just like it's going to help encourage more pastors. Do you get these messages, Johnny, where it says, hey, your recent Facebook post did better than 87% yes, of yep. your other posts, right? I see those, right? Yeah. So when, when you men and women uh, share in whatever group you're in, like if you're in like this 
Facebook pastors group. Don't probably don't do it in the small church pastor group because we've got a lot of listeners in small church pastor Dave Jacobs group. They'll be like yawn. Well, yeah, but they'll be like eighty of them sharing oh, in the see. small church <laughs> pastor group, there, yeah. and the whole thing will be just clogged up with that. Yeah, so, are you in a denominational group? Right, right. A pastors group right. for your denomination? Are you in? You know, I'm in all sorts of these little groups. I think pastors just eventually amass groups on Facebook. And if you've got like this bishop over you or this uh, superintendent or district overseer or whatever you call him or her, send it to them and encourage them to send it out to the rest of your group. Now do this if you're benefiting from the podcast. Right. I mean, if it's encouraging to you and it's encouraging to me, I'm the first, hey, I'm kind of, I'm the first listener. You are the first I am listener. the first one to listen to every episode. You are the VIP. And I guarantee you, I listen, I listen to it always more than once. Yeah. And I'll pull up an old episode going down the road and listening, not to listen to me, but we've got such great guests oh that goodness. have come on Slides over out. the years. It's awesome. So, hey, we're just asking you, if it's a good thing for you, share it. It's, yes. It won't take you but 30 seconds. Yeah. Share it, and we'd love to get... Uh, more people listening. Hey, talk about today's uh, guest who is also a listener. Today's guest who is also a listener is David Householder. David Householder is a pastor in Orange County, California. Can I make fun of his name? Sure, I suppose. Householder? Yeah. What, what Does he sell real estate or like <laughs> what is this guy? What's a householder? I, didn't he say it's a name with no origin? I feel like you mocked no, him. No, I think he said uh, it was a household life. name. No, stop it. <laughs> I think he said it's an originless name, I think is how he talked about it. Oh, it has it. no origin. Yeah, that's okay. just kind of That funny. was probably, I'll look for that for the outtakes, yeah, maybe. Yeah, they just made it up. So David Householder has been, he's been listening for a while, and he said a year and a half. I swear it's longer. I it's feel like longer. he's been encouraging us. Yeah. Because he is an encouragement to us. He'll right. always tell us, you know, I'm telling people about the podcast. It's super great. This is an eclectic dude, and I mean that in a positive sense. Uh, you'll hear his story and kind of his rhythms of life, which are very cool. And uh, But he talks about, with us today, he talks about Sabbath. He talks about next generation leadership. We touch on a couple different topics. David is really a thoughtful guy, like I said, an eclectic guy. And I think that you're going to enjoy this conversation that we had with him. And you're going to hear in this conversation your own story reflected back at some point. If you are a 70s leftover. Yeah, there you go. Right? right? I'm not allowed to say that because I'm not a 70s leftover. Well, see, so you're but... being so nice to the guy. And I'm well, I'm just, he's a good guy. The poor guy. <laughs> well, no, he is. He's, he's bivo, an awesome guy. which we talk about a little bit. I think yep. a lot of our listeners are bivocational, so I mean, you can connect with his story. Probably, maybe not the desert trailer, but he'll get he'll tell his own story yeah, on that. Yeah. But yeah, follow him on Instagram, Facebook, all these different kinds of places. He's a good guy. So good to have you, David Householder, on the Two Hundred Churches podcast today. Great to be here, Jeff. Thanks for inviting me, David. When was uh, when was the first time you listened to the Two Hundred Churches podcast? I'm thinking it's about a year ago. My wife and I have a trailer out in the desert, and every Thursday we take off from Orange County where we live and where we pastor, and we go over the mountains, and there's about an hour where we don't have any cell reception and so and virtually no radio. So what we did is we started looking for podcasts, found this one, and now it's sort of a weekly ritual. We, we listen to you guys as we go over the mountains on, on Thursday, pretty much every week. I feel honored, I mean, to be part of something like that. That's... Uh... I mean, you could spend your hour doing much, much more important things than listening to us. So. I associate your voices with really gorgeous scenery as you go through the mountains outside of San Diego. So, ah, 
Wow, well, that's fantastic. Perhaps man. the only thing better looking than our studio, maybe. The opulent studio. <laughs> so, David, tell us about you. We, we know precious little about you, you and your wife, your family, your ministry. Give us the, give us the nutshell version. Be glad to do that. My wife and I, Wendy, have been married for 35 years. We pastor a church called Robinwood Church, which was a church plant 10 years ago in Orange County. We meet in a high school cafeteria, and I was born in the mountains. My father was an itinerant evangelist for the Lutheran Church, and Wendy was born in Asia, raised by a, a father who was a timber exporter, and she came to college at Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma, Washington, where we met in the Outdoor Recreation Club. And We've been together ever since. I have a 28-year-old son, Lars. He's uh, just graduated from Cal State Fullerton with a business degree. So that's the sort of the short version. That's fantastic, David. Um, you are part of the Four Square Church. Tell me how you go from an itinerant Lutheran upbringing to being part of the Four Square Church. Well, my Lutheran background has to do with uh, what's called the Hauge movement. And Hauge was a guy in the late 1800s in Norway who was a lay preacher, and he went from town to town, and he advocated basically what I'd like to call loyalty towards the state church, the Lutheran church, but also meeting in prayer meetings and starting businesses. Norway was just coming out of serfdom at the time, and kind of like Russia, those northern countries, it took a long time to leave the Middle Ages. And so people were starting businesses, so he would give them business plans, get them started, and lead prayer meetings. And he did a lot of jail time for that because they had a law in Norway called the Conventical Law, where people who did communion without an ordained pastor around went to jail. Oh, wow. So I did 11 years of jail time or something like that. My ancestors did jail time. And so uh, they came to America, and it was sort of the evangelical slash charismatic wing of the Lutheran Church, very warm piety, very informal worship, and all that kind of stuff. We were a part of the the church up until um, probably, I want to say, five years ago. And then the denomination sort of started to distance itself from us. And so Foursquare was a group we hung out with a lot. There's sort of a lot of uh, resonance with them. Foursquare is a non-legalistic, charismatic Pentecostal group out here in California. And uh, a lot of Lutheran sensibilities, actually. And so we just sort of ended up with them in the 90s. And so when sort of drifted into Foursquare, but they've, yeah, they've been very good to us. So we've known them for a long time. So, David, you have, a, you have a very eclectic and beautiful Instagram account. That's kind of my main social media. So if anybody out there is looking for that, uh, you, they should check you out, Liberty House, without an E, if I'm not mistaken, on Instagram. Um, but you, So you live in California. You live in this very beautiful area. You've got your desert trailer out there. But you're a bivocational guy, right? So when do you get a time to rest? I think resting is super, super important, and I think that that's really tough for small church pastors. And I've struggled with it for much of my ministry, and it's just been really hard because we have these relational connections with pretty much everyone in our churches. So it's pretty hard to say, hey, I'm just going to take off. I'm not going to answer your phone calls. It, it sounds better when you're in a large church to say, well, I've got thousands of people to take care of. I'll get back to you on Tuesday. But that doesn't work so well in a small church. And so my wife and I finally, a couple of years ago, we we like to hike and we were hiking out in the desert and we ran across this trailer for sale out in the desert and it's super cheap to live out there. And so we just sort of fell in love with the desert and we have this 1958 trailer with tail fins, which is, is just gorgeous. 
And we love to work on it. We love to hike. And there's no cell reception out there or virtually no cell reception. So we we go out on Thursdays. We listen to the 200 Churches podcast on the way. And uh, we spend all of Friday out of cell phone range in the desert. And we don't do any work. We hike, work on the trailer, have fun, spend time together. And then on Saturday morning, I'm still there in the desert. I, I finish up my sermon. And I think sermons that get written in a, in a gorgeous place sound better than sermons written in an office anyways. So uh, uh, then we drive home and we get started. So everybody sort of knows that, but it's been wonderful for our marriage. It's been wonderful for for our church. I think it's been good all around. But I would really just love to encourage small church pastors to find ways to to get a place to go. And one of the things that was suggested to be my by another small church pastor was trading spots with another small church pastor in a nearby town, just switching houses, going out and living in their house. They live in your house and you can just spend a day in a different town every week. Hmm. I guess that's been working really well for this one pastor I talked to. But I think in a small church, it's especially hard because the scorecard that we need to do this, this, and this, and we need to grow and attendance, building cash, which small church pastors feel the pressure under, even if they're, they say they like being in a small church, and I'm in a small church for by choice. I, I really enjoy the relational part of that, and I try to ignore the scorecard anyways. But I know a lot of small church pastors get pushed by that scorecard, and survival even, of the church. And so they think, well, if I just stay here and do a little bit more, and that little bit more really never gives you time for a Sabbath. I think it's so important to, to try to keep one. David, I remember receiving an email from you, and you told me about your trek to the desert uh, at the end of every week with your wife. Tell, tell us your wife's name again. My wife's name is Wendy. We've been married 35 years. She came to faith in college right before I met her, and my faith had not yet come alive. I jokingly said, I like everything about Wendy when I was talking to my friends except the, quote, born-again thing. And so uh, she had come to personal faith. I had not yet. Soon afterward, I did come to faith, and uh, where my faith came alive. I think it would be a better way to say that. And we got into junior high ministry together, which was really fun. We were in a small church where we got married, and there were six kids in the junior high group, and nobody wanted them, and it was a volunteer position, so there it was in the bulletin. We signed up for it, and that sort of has been a crooked line that led right to where we are right now. David, you're uh, bivocational. Tell us what else you do besides ministry. Well, I do ministry halftime, and I've filled the other half with a lot of different things along through the years. Uh, a few years back, I spent a lot of time working for the Alpha Course, the Alpha Course, which is an evangelistic course for adults, mm-hmm. and traveled all over the country doing that. I had a radio show here in Los Angeles, and we also broadcast up in San Francisco, Afternoon Drive Radio, and that was a Christian calling talk show. And that was really fun because I got to uh, talk to lots of important people. And it was just so fun because everybody wanted to be on the air, kind of like what you guys have. You get to talk to N.T. Wright and Brian Zond and all this stuff. It's got to be kind of fun. Yeah. It's it's not like you guys need continuing education credits at all. I mean, you guys continue every week to hear from these people. Exactly. It's wonderful. Yeah, that was great. And right now I'm I'm trying to put together a new way of training pastors. And so I'm working with some uh, a foundation back in the Midwest and with a university out here to try to get something started so we can train pastors more effectively. So what were the struggles for you, David, when you started this habit of Sabbath keeping? Sounds like, you know, Friday is your Sabbath day. You've got that, you know, really partitioned off for you and for Wendy. What were the challenges of getting into that rhythm? Well, one of the advantages of getting into that rhythm is the whole congregation knows you and they care about you. So they really do want you to take that time off. And so especially if you've been in a small church for 10 years, you like them, they like you, and 
they want to make sure that you are doing okay. So I've never had a single person to say, we wish you didn't do that. I think that that could happen early on in one's ministry in a certain church. But once you've been there for a while in a small church, people probably care about us more than we think. Uh, I've often seen people like quit in a small church thinking nobody likes them. And afterward, they get 73 phone calls of people say, why'd you do that for? We all, we're all supportive. Hmm. And so I think we, uh, we often underestimate the support we have in our congregations. I, I also read a book. My wife got me a book, and it was Joe Lieberman's book. And he's the senator that ran with Gore for president. It's called The Gift of Rest, Rediscovering the Beauty of the Sabbath. And that book was a, one of those handful of books that was a real turning point for me. Uh, Joe Lieberman is a, is a practicing Orthodox Jew, and he takes the Sabbath very seriously. He says he has never done any work on the Sabbath except for buying his wife flowers. Even when he was running for president, Senate of all these, you know, and all these important committees wow. and stuff. So I thought, well, you know, he's busier than I am. And if he can do this and thrive doing it, well, maybe I should too. You know, a few weeks ago, we talked to Ken Shigematsu on the podcast. And he talked about kind of the, the rule of life or the order of life and uh, one of the huge cornerstones of that was r- what you're describing, the keeping of the Sabbath. Tell me, I mean, tell me personally the, the kind of the transformation you kind of saw. Well, walk me through what it was like when you weren't and what it's like now for you with that Sabbath keeping. Uh, that's a great question, Johnny. Uh, prayer has always come pretty easy for me. It's a big part of our tradition that I grew up with, kind of free prayer, open prayer, kind of a warm piety. And so it was never a real problem for me. But my prayer life has really taken off because I'm able to take advantage of a full day on Friday where it's quiet. And I'm not always racing around and I'm not always working through a to-do list. And that's been really, really good. It's been very good for our marriage. I, once again, our marriage hasn't been that that troubled. Uh, as far as that goes, our marriage has been fairly easy. But the last two years have been especially sweet, just especially sweet. It was just Valentine's Day early on this week. And, and uh, my wife and I were able to say some things to each other that showed some real development in our relationship. Just spending time together on Fridays has been so much fun. That's really fantastic. And, and I, I guarantee you, David, that we have listeners right now who are uh, paying attention to what you're saying, and they are struggling in some of these areas. They're struggling with their prayer life. They're struggling with their uh, husband or with their wife. And uh, you would say, I think Sabbath is, is vital, to, to the health of your marriage and your spiritual life and, and yourself, right? Oh, it is. And we're who, we're who are in small churches. We need to take advantage of the fact that we have a lot of unstructured time. And we have a lot to do, but mm. a lot of it doesn't matter when we do it. Because we, do, we don't have this sort of corporate church structure like we have in big churches. And so we do have a lot more say-so as to when we go and do things. Most people only see us a couple times a month, three times a month maybe in California. And so whether we're there all week or not doesn't really matter all that much. And it's it's a lot easier than people think. The key, though, is to find your own rhythm. Some people really like to just check out after church on Sunday and take a Sabbath through Monday, and that works good for them. But yeah. we, tried Saturday, we tried Saturdays for years, and it never worked because there was always a wedding. There was always something to go to. But half the time, we weren't able to do it. And so we weren't able to develop a rhythm. And just getting out of town has been a huge advantage for us. But I I would just encourage those of you listening that you have to find your own rhythm and your own day that works. And I wish it didn't take me 20, 25 years to get there, but it did to get it right. And I don't think it has to. I think we need to kind of jump into that sooner. This this made God's 
top 10 list. That's really important. We have a lot of pastors, younger guys, and then we have some older guys like Jeff, obviously. But it's a good word, I think, to uh, get into these healthy rhythms sooner rather than later in your life and uh, to be intentional about the time that you're taking and investing in other areas. David, how long does it take you to drive out to the location? Well, it's supposed to take two and a half hours, but it takes longer than that because we like to stop on the way. We've got special places we like to eat, places we like to shop, and the drive is gorgeous. Is that Volkswagen bus yours, that red one? It is. I have a 1971 bus called Red Rover, which I've been working on for probably 13 years. And it's uh, somewhat dependable, but not that dependable. But we like to take it off-road in the desert. That's a lot of fun. Man, you know, you got to live out where there is a desert that you can drive to. Uh, You're just in a real prime location to experience that kind of uh, retreat and getaway on a weekly basis. And you did. You you challenged our listeners to find their own time and their own space to do that. Uh, It's easy for us to say, oh, yeah, it's a lot easier for you. You're out in the... LA area, but uh, we we would have a spot if we looked around. Sure, and there's a lot of church camps too that are pretty much empty during the week, especially during the winter and the fall and the spring. And they often have a place where pastors can stay for almost free. And I know some pastors that do that too. They they have a sort of standing invitation with with a church camp, a Bible camp nearby, and head up there on a regular basis. And that's also a really good way to do things for a very low cost. I think low cost is important. And that's why we're out in the desert where it costs almost no money to live at all. But I also think it, it helps with a long pastorate. And I uh, I was convicted a few years back from reading John 10, which talks about the shepherd and the hireling and how the hireling runs when there's trouble and the the shepherd stays and gives up his life for the, for the flock. And uh, I think it's really key that if we expect our people to be committed to us, that we should show some commitment to them. And the more I'm able to tell people, hey, folks, this is my family of destiny. I'm sticking with you guys. This is a non-disposable relationship. You guys are go-the-distance people in my life. And to be able to go the distance in a long pastorate, I think it's pretty much impossible to do that without taking a Sabbath. I I don't know that you could pull that off. I think a lot of our ministries get cut short because we, we haven't taken care of ourselves that way. So, Dave, you have not always been in a small church. You did serve in a larger church. And earlier you said that it's you're, you're in a smaller church by choice. So tell us about the transition and why you did that. Well, I grew up in a small church in northern Idaho, and I loved it. I, I really did. I, I, I had no idea what was going on spiritually or faith-wise, but I just liked it socially. I liked the multi-generational feel of it. I liked the fact that people were interacting in a positive and uh, a faith-filled way. And I saw the difference between the church and the community and how people acted, how people talked to each other. And uh, I just liked that. And as I came out of seminary, I started in a small church. My wife and I planted a small church on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington and had a wonderful time there. And then we ended up in a very, very large church in Minnesota. It didn't start out large, but I was the associate pastor there, had a really good run there for eight years. And through the Alpha Course, the church grew to thousands, and uh, it was part of that was demographics. We we had thousands and thousands of homes being built in the south suburbs of the Twin Cities, but uh, also the senior pastor I worked with, uh, Bill Boleyn, who just retired, he planted that church. He took a Sabbath every week up at the up at his lake cabin, and pretty much disappeared for the summer. And I said, well, you can just disappear for the summer. He says, yeah, what are they gonna do? Fire me? I started this church, and there's. <laughs> 
there's something to that. And he, he always looked 10 years younger than his friends that were his age. And he had a really good run. So I think that in a large church also that, uh, that Sabbath keeping is, is super important. And the church of Minnesota got very, very large. And I love that church. I'm probably kind of still sort of on staff there. But it was hard for me to be pastoral with people I didn't know. And I could tell there was an expectation that I should probably kind of fake it to pretend like I knew them. Like people would come up to me and say, do you remember baptizing our, our son? Or do you remember when you did our wedding? Hmm. And I could see there was an expectation. They wanted me to say yes. And I just felt very uncomfortable with that. I, I just And there's nothing wrong with large churches. I think some pastors are called to be in those public roles. And I really thrived in that role in some ways. But when I started to lose touch with the people, I, I just I didn't want to do that anymore. And so when I saw our, our final big worship center going up with two 3,000 seats in it, I, I still remember looking at the construction site and thinking, yeah, it's time for me to leave. I need to, I need to find something else to do. That is very interesting. You started to lose touch with the people, and that's just not the environment that you wanted. No, and I'm not putting down pastors right. who thr- Right. In, those, in those environments, some pastors are ranchers, some are shepherds. I'm more of a shepherd, and I love knowing my people. I, I like to know their kids' names. I like to know whether or not they have a pet, where they work. And I don't want dis- to disciple everyone in our church directly, but I want to have a sense for where they're at. For me, that's just really, really important. When we talked about some of the things that we could talk about in this episode, you mentioned uh, next-gen ministry challenges in small churches. And so I'm assuming that you have in your small church some ministry challenges with the next generation. You want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, that's been a new revelation for me in the last month or two. I, Like a young baby boomer, which I am, I still think I'm in the young generation, which is just not true anymore. It's yeah. it's typical of our generation. We're very uh, narcissistic as a generation. We kind of think the whole world revolves around our, our bunch. And uh, a recent Pew survey showed that only one in seven solo or lead pastors are under 40. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Very interesting. Yeah, that's that's a really big deal. And I was talking with a good friend of mine who is also in a charismatic Lutheran church in Arizona, and we talk about once a year. And he's just super, super sharp guy. Talking to him about our churches, very similar churches. We both love small churches. We both love spirit-filled churches. We both love real missional type of, of churches. And we, in the course of the conversation, came to the realization that we're both about the same age and most of the people in our church that we're able to reach effectively are within 15 years south or north of us. So I'm in my mid-50s, so basically 40 to 70 is my sweet spot. And we weren't really enjoying that insight as it came to us. And I was I was uh, kind of flabbergasted by that because I had always led, up until a few years ago, a young adults group. And it fell apart. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm good at this. I've done this my whole ministry. Young adult ministry is kind of my thing, and I couldn't get it going again. And I've just, I've just aged out of that, entirely out of that group. And the problem with a small church is we don't have the staff or the staff budget. We don't even have one full-time equivalent at our church, including me. And so to add a, a staff person who is high profile up front who can connect with people that are younger is out of the range of most small churches financially, especially on the West Coast, where the dirt under my very small house is worth huge amounts of money. Right. And you can't just buy property. The overhead here is ridiculous. Uh, we were paying in one warehouse we were in when our church was in it, we we're paying $14,000 a month for, for a warehouse. So wow. you get the idea of what it's like to, to do church in a 
expensive area. And so uh, it's tough. It's really tough. So staff is always minimal, and you do the best you can. To bring on an associate pastor who eventually could become a senior pastor who is maybe 32 with kids is kind of out of the picture. So you have to kind of figure out, okay, how are we going to do that? And both my friend and I realized that if we looked at our churches, and I went back and checked this, the peak of our population is right where we are age-wise and, and their kids. And so that's not good because in a small church, if you want to have an ongoing ministry and a legacy in a church that continues to outlive the pastor, you have to take those generational considerations very, very seriously. So we're trying to figure out what to do with that. And since I'm bivocational, I'm looking for ways to go very bivocational and earn almost all my money doing something else so I can set aside what I make for another pastor coming on. So if any of your listeners want to be that pastor, let me know. So you would, you're looking for then a bivocational pastor as well, but somebody you could push as much salary over to as possible. As much as possible and, uh, and get that going and get that person up front. You see, in, in a large church, you just bring someone like that on, or even a, a larger small church. You guys have done that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So it, but in a small church in a, an expensive area, that's just really not in the cards. Well, you know, David, you could do it too if you give up the uh, desert, <laughs> you know, and the sunshine every day of the year. That's true. We could uh, we could live in a cheaper <laughs> area, but then I'd have to give up on all my people or take them with me, and I don't think they'll want to come. Yeah, I know. Well, see, I can, our church can afford a guy like Johnny and his family because we don't have the desert right next door. You know, there's the... There's That's the, true. We're in the middle of winter right now, and it's like, this is why it uh, is affordable to why live do here. People, why do people choose and decide to live in a place like this? Well, the desert is really cheap, actually, where we are, and we are looking, actually, to plant a church there out of our church because uh, 70% of the population there is English-speaking Latino, and none of the four or five churches in town, two 3,000 people in town, are actually reaching them at all. Hmm. And so uh, we're looking for probably a young... Uh, Latino family that uh, primary language would be English and could connect with them and we could get started out there for really cheap. That would be a lot of fun because I think you could have a church of 200 there in a few months. Very interesting. So in your church though, you said that the the average age is close to your age? Yeah, the average age of adults is close to my age and then their kids and grandkids. And so it looks, when you look at it at first glance, it looks pretty balanced. But if you really look carefully the people that I've led to the Lord, the people I've baptized, the people I connect with best are between 40 and 70. Yeah. And that's that's just a natural affinity thing. And does it look like their kids, their their adult kids, are going to move into leadership in your church, like naturally? Well, we've got a, a little niche there with, with some people because their kids, we, we've got a fairly active nursery. And right now our youth group is sort of falling apart, but our nursery is doing really well. And that has to do with the fact that I'm moving into grandparent age with them. And so there's a natural affinity there. All the little kids know who I am and I know who they are and that kind of thing. And we've got, we've shelled out money for profession, two professional nursery attendants. And that's super important because that's one group we're sort of able to reach is the, the parents with the sort of toddler age. So you can't do everything as a small church. And sometimes you have to let the youth group go so you can work on the, the nursery. And you've got to make choices. The idea that you have to do everything a medium-sized church is doing or staff for one, it's just not realistic. Yeah, that, I mean, Dan Ryland, even, who comes from 12 Stone, has come on and said that, you know, that's just the reality of church is you you got to know who you are and what you're good at and, and be and do those things. But I think, uh, you know, there's obviously when the nursery's full, there's, there's great hope for the future. Uh, so it sounds like you guys have a positive vision. And I'll use that as a jump off to just to speak to the pastors listening and say, are you being as thoughtful as David 
about the future of your church? Are you thinking through what leadership is going to look like over the next you know, 5, 10, 15 years as you age in order to continue to be a church that uh, can minister to people of all ages and, and of various backgrounds? Because that's a huge uh, important thing. And, and what every small church should have going for it is that they are friendly and welcoming. And that can uh, cover a multitude of sins. <laughs> but you do have to stay intentional, I think, about uh, continuing to be uh, agile for the community that you're in and for the people that you want to reach. Well, yeah, and we see what we want to see in our churches. So if you want to see a church, uh, if you think that your church is really balanced generationally, you're going to see that, and you're going to have sort of what we call in radio confirmation bias. You're going to see the things you want to see and not see the things you don't. But to take a real look at your membership list and find out where the peak of that is, and if that peaks where your age is, you have to think, okay, if I'm a younger person, how are we going to reach the older people? If I'm an older person, how are we going to reach some of the younger adults and do a better job of that? Part of it is just being honest, and it's, it's easy to kind of fool yourself as to the demographics of your church the average American or the average person in our zip code is 32 and a half years old. Well, uh, we're not there. And I used to think of ourselves as a church that's doing pretty well with that. But so many small churches end up with just a few dozen old people, and they didn't take it seriously. And the pastor sort of coaxed it off into retirement with, with an older group of people. And if you just move into a church and it's that way, there's nothing you can do about it right away. But you you definitely want to people, we call it the platform principle, people on the platform You've got to get people on the platform who look like the people that you have missing. Otherwise, they're going to walk in and they're not going to see anyone like themselves up front. And that's that's not a good thing, both uh, ethnically and generationally. Mm-hmm. It's 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 so important to to have that with the sort of platform principle. And I certainly don't do that. You know, we've got a worship pastor who's 33. She does a great job. But it'd be good if there was also a teaching, speaking person up front to to help make that happen. And millennials are kind of, they're slower at, at stepping in sometimes, and that's not a criticism. Part of the whole millennial thing out here is that there are so many options. When I was, when I was a young adult, there were very few options I had. You do this or you do this. And now there's like hundreds of things they can do. And it takes a while to kind of work through all that. Who are they going to be? What are they going to do with, with all of these vocational options? Mm-hmm. Millennials also are not uh, running for office. They're they're running for office at a much lower frequency than any other young adult generation in the past. And they're just taking their time before they figure out where to fit in. And so moving into leadership for a millennial, just because they're hesitant doesn't mean they don't want to do it or against you or something. They just need time. I've, I've got millennials I'm working with trying to bring them onto our onto our elder board. It could take a few years with each one of them. You know, David, what you're saying is so true. Uh, Jeff said that to me when he brought me on here. He said, you know, if you are committed to young families, then you need to put young families on the leadership team and put young families on the platform. And I think if you looked at the peaks of our church, they'd be my age range and Jeff's age range. <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's a hundred percent played out in our church. Um, it's not without tension. I mean, it's not without difficulty at times to, to have two peaks in your church. That's, you know, that's the kingdom of God. That's uh, being better together. So mm-hmm. th- this will be kind of, I think, our closing question, and now we're off topic, but you said something that interested me about millennials on your elder board. I think that a lot of baby boomers have this real negative notion 
of millennials as a bunch of basement dwelling participation trophy getting losers you're saying you're trying to bring millennials into positions of leadership talk me through that like what do you see the value as and then do you buy into this narrative of the whiny i am a millennial so i'll just say you know i have four kids in a home you are a little whiny though (laughs) i don't even go to the basement of my house (laughs) i am whiny so talk to us about that david well, the, the millennial thing out here is also ethnically driven. We've got roughly in our zip code one-third Vietnamese, one-third Mexican-American, one-third Anglos in our immediate service area. And each one of the each one of those ethnicities has a different spin on the millennial thing. And so an Anglo-millennial won't be a lot like a Latino millennial or an Asian millennial. There's different values in those family structures, those cultural structures. It's it's just different. And so the classic sort of Anglo-millennial stereotype doesn't play out really well here. It's it's mm-hmm. different than that. I, I look at Latino millennials and they've got a whole different experience. And uh, it, they just don't fit the Anglo sort of stereotype at all. And, of course, the, the Asian millennials have uh, education as a super, super high priority. And so they're often off to school a long ways away doing all kinds of things and there's a there's a real drive for that and so it's and their family bonds are different too the families the family connections in an asian or latino family tend to be a lot stronger than those in an anglo family uh, the multi-generational stuff and so it's more challenging for instance with, with latino young people you try to get them into to leadership and they'll three meetings in a row, they'll have big family things that they have to go to. It's like somebody's birthday or a cousin's quinceanera or something. And they just can't come. And small groups are out of the question because their social mm. dance card is full. And so it's just it's just a whole different thing. So out here in California, which is coming everywhere, I think, in the world, is that uh, the new generations of adults coming up, as they will continue to come up, are going to be more and more ethnically diverse. And so it creates a really complicated thing. And so you, you basically just have to give up the the desire to vote on it. You, you don't get to vote on these things. It's Every generation is going to be the way it's going to be. And we have to work with that generation the way that generation is. Every generation has got good and bad things. I mentioned earlier that, that baby boomers tend to be kind of narcissistic as a generation. But on the other hand, we uh, tend to be very idealistic and, and uh, get a lot done because we think we can. So there's there's good and bad in every generation. And uh, to focus on the good and to work with it, I think it's really important. And in what you're saying, David, I hear you saying we can't change the culture. It's it is what it is, and it's where we live, and we have to d- adapt to it and deal with it. Yeah, just like good missionaries. If you were going to Africa, you do the same thing. You try to connect with what's going on there. You wouldn't try to you wouldn't complain about how they're not they're not doing it right or they're they're not being like our generation. Oh, there's a whole discussion in that, David. But we won't go to that discussion. All right. Well, hey. Any parting shots for small church pastors, David? You, I mean, you are I, one. So I, I love being a small church pastor. I, I think it's one of the greatest privileges there is. This Sunday afternoon, we have a, a young couple in our church that's getting married, and I've been working with them in their pre, uh, their pre uh, uh, marriage counseling. I'm working them both into leadership. They're just uh, once again, they're people in their twenties doing some great stuff. And his uncle, he was really close to, died, and. Uh, hmm the kind of uncle that shows up at your graduation, that kind of thing. And he said, uh, you know, uh, we're going to, we're going to bury his ashes at sea. And, uh, could you come out and do that? Cause he wasn't involved in a church. Hmm. And I said, sure, that sounds great. And I got to meet the entire extended family group and spend the afternoon on the boat. And 
if I was a large church pastor, I wouldn't have time to to do a service out at sea for a friend of a member. That's just not going to happen. But missionally and relationally, it was incredibly rewarding. And those kind of things are just, there's no price you can put on those things. So I would just encourage small church pastors to appreciate and be as grateful as possible for all the good things we have and to enjoy those things and to enjoy being a big part of our, our, our parishioners' lives and to have the privilege of being a part of births and deaths and marriages and those big passages of life. And uh, I think it's one of the greatest vocations left in America. I really do, because we get to do so many different important things. And it's one of the few non-specialized relationships and vocations that we that's left anymore. That's cool. Well, obviously, Johnny and I agree. And uh, Amen. David, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, be sure to say hello to Wendy for us. We'll be glad to do that, and uh, we're going to look forward to to hearing this podcast every every Thursday as we head over the hills. So you guys have been a great encouragement to me, and you've been a big part of that sort of shifting in my thinking over the last few years into a, a different way of keeping score. Very cool. Very cool, David. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Shigamatsu, Johnny. Shigamatsu. Dude, that's how you're coming back. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not this ancient exercise practice. No. It's actually a pastor's name. Yes. From Vancouver, B.C. Mm-hmm. Episode 210. Yeah. Just like fitness videos, this stuff is never going to go out of style. This right. thing about rest and rhythm. Rest and rhythm. Ken Shigematsu called it the rule of life, and, and I think that's what David Householder is getting at with a lot of this conversation. So if you were kind of connecting with what David was saying about the impact it's had on his life to practice Sabbath, to practice rest, to, to have rhythm... Uh, and you haven't listened to 210, go back and listen to 210. Get yourself that book, The Rule of Life, I think is what it's called, right? The it's Rule called of God in My Everything. God in My Everything, that's yeah. right. God in My Everything. Go get yourself that book. And, uh, you know, I think if you're heading toward uh, some sort of significant life change, that can be a great opportunity to uh, do things like this, to change things up. So look at your life and say, what can I shake up? Right now, uh, we're hurtling toward Lent. Now, Jeff, you, you and I come from a tradition we don't talk that much about right, Lent. Right. But for a lot of pastors listening, Lent is a time where your life is gonna is gonna be shaken up in some way. Maybe you're giving something away, you're picking something up. Maybe this is an opportunity for a change. So God am I everything would be a great resource for you. And then this conversation with David, I think, can be a great jumping off point. I hope I don't make pastors mad. When, don't joke about Lent. When, <laughs> come on. No, I, I was just going to say that the coming is nothing sacred, Jeff. The church calendar. No, I'm not joking about Lent. I don't think this is a joke. Okay. But this just shows how my tradition so like doesn't really recognize the right. Lenten season. Right. When the biggest thing I look forward to in Lent is that all the fast food places that okay, normally sure. don't serve fish. They serve fish. That's fine. That's not bad. Okay. And I got the, real worried for a second. And the McDonald's fish fillet sandwiches always get cheaper during Lent. Two for two twenty two, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that's not. Oh, I was worried man. it was going to be way worse than that. Jeff, I'm actually no, giving. Johnny, I am in, doing no, something. You got to clear my name here now. In private. What? In private. 
I would not joke about Lent. No, no, no. You okay? Because no. you just like. I mean, I was looking at the underside well, of the bus there for our, a second. Look, our listeners know you well enough. You just called our uh, guest a '70s leftover, <laughs> so it's not like <laughs> I'm. I'm doing oh, something man. for Lent this year, Jeff. I'm. I'm. I'm actually participating. So well, good. Yeah, good. So you're gonna start working now? Yeah, or? that's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're gonna quit. That's the thing that I'm. I'm actually. Yeah, I'm gonna add work I'm teasing. to my schedule. I'm teasing. It's be great. Hey, hey, Pedro. Our buddy Pedro, who is going to be a future guest on the show, Pedro, yeah. you know who you are from the. Uh, it's not a continent; it's a country. I almost said from the continent of Brazil, well, the continent of South America, South America, South America. He likes it when we rip on each other, and okay. he specifically said that he likes it when we rip on Carrie Newhoff. What? How often <laughs> do we rip on Carrie Newhoff? That's what I thought. Then it's of note. Did I not? I don't think. I didn't share that email with you. No, I didn't see Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, Pedro, if you're listening, man, here's what I did. I clipped that line out of your email. Did you send it to Carrie? I I texted it to Carrie. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And Carrie had a good laugh out of that. So, yeah, Carrie Newhoff's, uh, his uh, podcast, uh, bad, just really bad. Well, it's so Canadian, eh? It's so, it's so Canadian. I mean. You can feel the frigid air and and Mounties. If he were anybody, he'd have 100 times the listeners we've got. He's only got 10 times the listeners (laughs) we have. What a schlub. (laughs) Uh, Carrie Newhoff. Oh. Okay. Couldn't, couldn't talk his way out of a paper bag. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Smooth. That's what I call him. What a what a way to end this. Okay. Podcast. So let's let's get back. Let's let's get the plane back on the approach. And just as it's ready to land, let's just remind you. Oh, oh, this is this is what I wanted to say earlier. Uh Dave Jacobs' book, The Shallows. Deep and wide. Uh Deep and Wide. Yeah, deep and wide. If you get Dave Jacobs' book, Deep and Wide, and Ken Shigematsu's book, God and My Everything, yeah. and you just use those for your quiet time for the next six months, oh my goodness, Pastor, seriously, that could really, really help you. These books are pennies. Mile-wide inch deep. Mile-wide inch deep. That's it, yes. mile-wide inch deep. Uh, something to go beyond the shallows yes. of. Deep and wide is Andy Stanley. My wide is Stanley. I've always said when you read the title of Dave's book, you've read more than you've half the book half already. The book, yeah. So, no. But get Dave Jacobs' book. Get Ken's book. It'd yep. be really, really helpful. That'd yep. be a great action step for this episode. Yeah. So we appreciate you listening. We appreciate listeners like Mike Householder who spend time with us and who send us encouraging emails. Again, share this with another pastor. Share it with your pastor group or or whoever you're with like that. Leave a rating review. Subscribe to the mailing list. We love our listeners. We love being able to encourage you. And and we're glad that you joined us on this episode of the 200 Churches Podcast. We hope you've been encouraged and inspired by this episode of the 200 Churches Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe at 200churches.com and receive the guy's free PDF download called Our 7 Favorite Ministry Resources. You can count on us to be back next Wednesday with another brand new shiny episode just for you. Until then, may God bless you as you lead and love the people in your 200 church. Jeff, are you there? Hello, Jeff. I do not hear you. There you are. Oh, okay. You found it. What'd you do? Are you there? Yep. Hello? Jeff? Hello? Jeff? Hello? 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 We don't hear each other.
It's very clear. <laughs> I hear you. Oh, you hear us. Okay, good. <laughs> I told you, I've got this thing with Skype. It's just uh, Skype demons. We need somebody to just cast this out of me. Do you, do, are you wearing headphones, David? I am. Okay, good. Okay. So you uh, can hear us now. I can hear you now. We never change anything. Huh. We're Strange. Just, I yeah, probably get the call got dropped. Is the sound coming across, across okay right now? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yes. That's funny. All right. Now, how do you pronounce your last name? Householder. Okay. How do you not know that? I don't know if it's maybe David like Householder. 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 It's a Kentucky name. There is no nationality. They lived in the country, and they didn't do silent letters. <laughs>